Imagine being able to explore the fascinating world of individual cells and their genomic makeup, to unravel the mysteries hidden within our cells, and to uncover the intricate mechanisms that cause disease. Today, we meet a cellular genomic scientist working on cutting-edge research that's improving the effectiveness of personalised therapy. Hi, I'm Mara Jean Tilly, and this is Medical Minds, the podcast of the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. In this series, we're diving deep into the minds of our amazing researchers to find out how they tick and how they are working to make our lives better. With me here is Professor Joseph Powell, Director of Cellular Science at Garvin and Director of the UNSW Cellular Genomics Futures Institute. Welcome, Joseph. Thanks, Marjean. Great to be here. Joseph, we've chatted with many of your colleagues at Garvin about genomics. Before we get into your expertise in cellular genomics, can you just recap for us why genomics is so important? So genomics is a field of research that studies the way in which DNA and the products of DNA differ between individuals. And the reason why it's important is if you think about the way in which we all look differently, we're different heights, we have different diseases or conditions or risks of developing different diseases, a major component of that is due to the differences in genomics between people. So genomic research and genomic medical research is studying where in your genome, where in your DNA are the positions that contribute to diseases and specifically how we can use that information to develop, for example, early screening studies, preventative healthcare, and probably most importantly, how we can use that information to develop new therapeutics. And you work in cellular genomics. What is that? So cellular genomics is, as the name suggests, the study of genomics, but at the level or the resolution of individual cells. And this has been driven by a phenomenal technological revolution over the last 10 years, but really picking up over the last five or six years where technology has been developed that allows us to generate genomic information incredibly accurately and at incredible scale at the level of individual cells. So we can now generate, for example, genomic information for a single patient's cancer sample for tens or hundreds of thousands of cells within a single tumor and do that in a very rapid uh, and efficient turnaround time. And why is it so important to study individual single cells, for example, in a cancer patient? The reason it's important is that every disease starts at the level of an individual cell. Cancer is one of the best examples of this. Cancer starts with a single mutation or group of mutations in one cell. By the time a patient visits their their doctor and it's detected, in that tumour there can be hundreds of different cancer cell types each with their own genomic profiles and each of which will respond to therapies in different ways. Now, the reason why it's really important to study cancers at cell level and other diseases is that many therapies that we have today are incredibly effective at treating some of those cancer cells and they can kill those cancer cells and they can lead to remission, but they have no effect on the other cancer cells. And so generating 
a complete profile of all of the different cells and the genomic profiles of those different cells allows us to do two things. One, it allows us to guide personalized therapies. So for example, combination therapies that target the different groups of cells within that, that patient. And it also allows us to discover what is happening in unique cell populations that we can then develop new therapies for. We've discussed cancer, but how is cellular genomics important when studying other diseases? So the principles that I outlined in cancer apply to almost every other disease and condition. If you think about something like autoimmune disease, so another group of conditions and diseases that are prevalent, widespread, and impact a lot of individuals, autoimmune diseases arise when your own immune cells attack your body. But it's not all of your immune cells attacking all cells in your body. It's one or two very specific cell subtypes of immune cells that are attacking one or two very specific other cells in your body. And the other very interesting component of this is that you can not only have different cell subtypes that are causing that disease, but you have differences in the DNA that is driving that change in different cells. And so by understanding the genomic variation at the level of individual cells, we will be able to guide the most effective therapies for a patient and longer term develop new therapies that will not just treat the symptoms of disease, but provide a cure for the disease. Joseph, can you tell us about the work and research that you and your team are doing with cellular genomics? My team's mission is to develop the next generation of genomic-led therapies, and we are doing so for a wide range of different diseases and conditions, everything from autoimmune disease, cardiovascular disorders, and neurological disorders such as Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. To do this, we generate some of the world's largest resources of cellular genomics information and data on tens of thousands of individuals and apply machine learning techniques to identify the subtle genomic differences between individual cells and how they are becoming disrupted to cause diseases. By doing this, we can do two things. Firstly, we can provide precision diagnostic tests to improve current treatments outcomes. So in other words, improving the efficacy of drugs that are currently offered to patients. Longer term, we focus on identifying the targets which can then be modulated by the latest wave of RNA therapeutics. Let's talk about stem cells, because stem cells play a key role in your research. Why is that? Yeah, so we're incredibly excited by the use of stem cells for our research. I think it's important to make it clear that we work in an area of stem cells called induced pluripotent stem cells. So this is a technology that was uh, developed about 15 years ago. It was awarded the Nobel Prize 12 years ago, where you can take a patient's blood sample and reprogram their blood cells to make what's referred to as a stem cell. And a stem cell is a cell that has the potential to make any other cell in the human body. And that's what pluripotent means. Using pluripotent stem cells, we can then guide those cells to become 
other cells in the human body. For example, we can make beating cardiac muscle cells in the dish. We can create neural organoids, which we refer to as mini brains. And we can do this from a patient's own blood sample, which contains their genetic profile. So when we're trying to understand the way in which genetic differences contribute to disease and the way in which you might guide a therapy for a patient, starting with their own genetic material becomes invaluable. Go back to what I was talking about earlier about the way in which disease arises at the level of an individual cell. If you're trying to study Parkinson's disease, it's obviously very difficult to get brain cells from patients with Parkinson's disease for obvious reasons. And so we can use stem cells to recreate the same cells and the same cell states for patients with Parkinson's disease, healthy controls, and then we can use cellular genomic technology to identify what are the differences between the diseased cell types and the healthy cell types. Moving forward, we can then apply CRISPR technology to correct for those mutations and return the diseased cell states back into a healthy cell state. The ultimate outcome of this will be, one, the development of new therapies, like I've described, but also possibly the application of stem cell transplants back into a patient. And there are already clinical trials happening across the world that are doing exactly that. So how long will it be before we see cellular genomics used more broadly in clinical practice? So genomics has already made an enormous impact in clinical practice. It's used for uh, detection of cancers. It's used for early screening. It's used to design and guide the best therapies. But to date, all of the genomic technology that is in clinical practice is what we refer to as bulk genomics. It's generating data over millions of cells and using a kind of average signal of those cells to inform the best treatment outcome. Cellular genomics is already now at the stage of being translated into clinical practice to improve in almost all of these application spaces. And it basically will provide a far greater degree of accuracy and resolution at guiding therapies, guiding treatment choices, uh, and early stage screening uh, for diseases. So an example of this is our work in Crohn's disease, where we've been able to show that patients will respond to different therapies, better or worse, depending on their genetic profile. We're demonstrating this with clinical trials at the moment, running across a wide range of hospitals in New South Wales, with the aim of developing a simple test that when a new patient goes to their doctor, they can have a cheap, simple, fast test to be able to inform the best therapy to treat their disease. How critical is the development of technology for your research? The work that we do, and many other researchers at Garvin, relies heavily on technology. It's critical and it's important that we remain continually at the forefront of where the technology is being developed. That can be technology in single cell sequencing. It can be the latest artificial intelligence or machine learning algorithms, some of which we develop, or it can be driving our own stem cell research and the types of technology that are necessary there. We're at a very fortunate point because in the last number of years, there's been an incredible rate of technological development across a number of domains in artificial intelligence, machine learning algorithms, and stem cell technology and ideas, and of course, in cellular genomics. 
And one of the most critical things for myself and my research team and other labs at Garvin Institute is to continually stay at the forefront of that technology. But we also need to really focus and think deeply about the types of questions and the clinical applications of those questions. And the way in which I think about this is it's really the intersection of these different approaches and these different technologies and ideas that allows us to make the most rapid advances in medical research and advance the rate in which we're able to improve healthcare and ultimately develop new therapies. Can you talk to us more about how you use machine learning in your research? So machine learning is a subfield of artificial intelligence. And the way in which we apply it is to develop algorithms that are then run on enormous, the world's largest data sets of their type, to help us identify where in the genome mutations are contributing to disease. And if we're developing a new therapy, what is the best target for that therapy in a cell and in a genome? So the field's advanced to a point now that without the use of machine learning or artificial intelligence techniques, it would be impossible to be able to understand and identify the genomic differences between people that are causing diseases. And it would certainly be impossible to do it at scale. And scale is completely necessary because of the amount of diversity between individuals. What do you think the future looks like for medical research and medicine? What changes can we expect over the next few decades? So I think we're at a particularly exciting moment in time in medical research. The advances in technology and the rate in which new ideas can be translated into a clinical setting uh, has become more rapid. Um, And so we're able to see translation of research in a much shorter time frame than was previously possible. Where I see the field going is realistically in the next sort of five to 10 years, I think we will uh, be much, much better at early diagnosis and early detection of diseases. And that's critically important because in most instances, then those diseases can be quite treatable and the impact on, on a patient and the impact on society more broadly becomes less. Moving forward into sort of 20 or 30 years, I would place a confident bet on the fact that we will have new therapies that provide a cure for the majority of diseases. So does this mean we'll all be living longer? So the advances that have been made in medical research will almost undoubtedly uh, extend human life. But I think more importantly, they will reduce the amount of uh, suffering and ill health that a patient or an individual has across their life. So it allows us really to live Uh, healthier, happier lives for longer. What excites you most about your research? There's two things that really excite me about my research. The first is working with really dedicated, phenomenal, smart people. It's an absolute joy and and a privilege. Outside of that, the thing that really motivates me is, is doing something that's of value for society and doing something that's going to make an impact. People that know me well know that I'm almost pathologically driven by wanting to have outcomes and wanting to see progress made. Um, That's what really motivates me. Joseph, did you always want to be a scientist? No is the short answer. Um, I think when I was young, I didn't know what I wanted to be. And I think it's only really through uh, having experiences and having opportunities that you end up finding a path that 
provides a, your own sense of satisfaction and your own sense of self-worth, but also something where you feel that you can make a contribution to the society more broadly. Joseph, it's time for the Fast Five. This is where we find out a little more on what makes you tick. What do you do in your downtime? Well, Marajin, I have a young son and a wife with a demanding job, so downtime is a subjective concept to me. But if I had any downtime, I would uh, mostly be doing outdoor sports, sea kayaking, mountain biking, cycling. What's one of the most challenging things you've ever done? So I completed the first solo expedition up the Tamanagara River System in Borneo um, when I was about 21, spending about three months traveling up the river system by dugout canoe, staying with Iban tribe, tribes people. It's pretty wild. Do you have a secret skill? I think I'm very good at cooking. Is that a skill? I think it is. And do you have a signature dish? Uh, the dish I'm probably most proud of, my son likes the most, which is Korean beef, which I cook almost weekly. <laughs> what are you currently reading? I'm reading the book. The book, How I Built This, is based on a podcast series of the same name hosted by Guy Raz. And um, it's interviews and discussions with founders of companies and in particular focusing on their journeys and how they learn to become leaders of their particular fields, but also build something that was valuable for society. Is there anything you're afraid of? Yeah, I'm absolutely terrified of sharks. I know people should be terrified of sharks because they're dangerous, but I've had a couple of unpleasant encounters and it is a deep fear of mine that prohibits me doing things that I would like to do. Go on. What are, what are these encounters? So I once had an encounter with a great white shark while sea kayaking, which was uh, a near miss. It wasn't being super aggressive, but was scary enough when it came up to my boat. I've had encounters with bull sharks in the Sydney Harbour or Brisbane River. And when I was much younger, it wasn't a shark, but I swam into a whale carcass, which led to a sort of fear of large fish or animals in water. Thank you so much, Joseph. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks, Mara Jean. It's been really great to be here and talk to you. If you'd like to know more about Professor Joseph Powell's research or the work we do at the Garvin, head to garvin.org.au. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and share with other podcast lovers. I'm Mara Jean Tilly. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on the traditional country of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. We recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders, past, present and emerging.